Thank you, Jake. And what a daunting job filling in for the great Alan Jones. I know how that feels. Well done. And good evening. You are watching ADH TV, the new home for common sense commentary in Australia. To watch our content, both live and on demand, all you need to do is download the app for your phone or TV at your usual app store. You can also find all our shows as podcasts wherever you download your audio programs. Now, in case you didn't know yet, more American politicians arrived in Taiwan for an unannounced and possibly deliberately provocative visit yesterday. Two weeks ago, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi led a delegation of Democrats to the island for a visit that has yet to be fully explained, but nevertheless sparked China into using the island for target practice for a few days. Whatever you think about China's aggression and the right of politicians from the free world to visit the supposedly free Taiwan, it is undeniable that there are times when making such an undiplomatic gesture is a terrible idea. You'd think that now, with China's ally Russia invading Ukraine, would be one such moment. Then again, appeasing China is also not in our long-term interests. Defence Minister Richard Miles was asked about this on the weekend, and his response was, quote, What we obviously want to see is a return to normal peaceful behaviour around the Taiwan Strait. We have to get back to that normal peaceful set of behaviours, unquote. Only then could the world, quote, breathe a sigh of relief. That rather conveniently lets China off the hook. We hear no call to boost defence spending to combat the Chinese threat in the Pacific. We hear no call for a corporate Australia to reduce its exposure to Chinese firms that are stealing our intellectual property and buying up our resources. And we hear no calls for China to respect Taiwan and its right to exist in peace. This latest visit should qualify for what Miles calls, quote, normal and peaceful. But his friends in Beijing are unlikely to see it that way. So there will be no sighs of relief being breathed in our region this week. History is replete with those who tried to appease aggressors and failed. But Miles is not the only politician going down this road. Pelosi herself is also having a crack at it, although not with China. You'll be astonished to learn who, or should I say what, she's trying to appease this week and what she's using to do it. More about that at the end of the show. In the meantime, we have two of the most uncompromising commentators in the nation on tonight, South Australian Senator Alex Antich, who will discuss the internal tensions in the Liberal Party, and Gideon Rosner of the Institute of Public Affairs discussing the latest threat to free speech. And Woke Watch today is not emanating from some crackpot university faculty or left-wing media machine, but instead from the combined efforts of the New South Wales government and opposition. What is dominating their agenda at the moment will boggle your mind. Now, let's get on with the show. Well, as I said in my first show two weeks ago, sustainability is a religion. It fills the gap created when we discarded such things as Christianity, patriotism and the family. Its high priests might wear lab coats and use scientific reasoning, but only in the service of saving the natural world from degradation by humans. 
To most environmental scientists, humanity's occupation of the planet is destructive, bordering on immoral, which is why so many of them can blithely overlook the human cost of their ideas. Destroy industries and force the poor to freeze in the dark? That's a small price for other people to pay when you're saving the planet from its human scourge. Few areas of scientific research, debate and policy exemplify this better than the protection of the lethal sharks that occasionally enter our beaches. For more than 20 years, scientists have been slowly but surely steering Australia towards accepting the primacy of these sharks over whichever humans are unlucky enough to be the victim of an attack, or as scientists call it, a shark bite encounter. It's not so long ago that sharks were seen as both a part of the natural world and a menace when they came close to popular beaches. The idea that we wouldn't do everything necessary to protect people, including kids, who were enjoying the beach was anathema a mere one or two generations ago. But that was before sustainability came along. The latest and arguably most significant development so far in this political process happened last week when Adam Crouch, the New, South, the New South Wales State MP for the beautiful Central Coast region just north of Sydney, said, quote, The Central Coast is so well placed to be the first region to get rid of shark nets. As a member of the Liberal, that's right, Liberal government, Crouch is now working with the Ministers for the Environment and Agriculture to have protective nets removed by this summer. He's doing this for two reasons. First, the nets... It's indiscriminately kill uh, innocent marine life. Notice the word innocent. There's that religion again. Nature, innocent, humans, guilty. Besides that though, the nets do discriminate. They are deliberately designed to allow most marine life to swim harmlessly through them. They do, however, kill the occasional turtle, dolphin and untargeted less lethal sharks. Whether you think that is an acceptable cost in protecting people depends on whether you are a member of the sustainability congregation. Crouch's second reason is that False sense of security. Shark nets do not stop sharks. Well, this is partly true. The nets do not enclose a beach. They operate like a trap across a small part of the beach that will kill any shark that happens to swim through it. Crouch's implication, though, that they don't stop sharks killing people is seemingly disproven by statistics. Shark nets were introduced to Sydney beaches in 1937. Since then, they've been extended to the Central Coast, Newcastle and Wollongong. There has been only one fatal attack at a protected beach in New South Wales since then, and 40 at unprotected ones. Similarly, in Queensland, there have been only two fatalities at protected beaches since nets and lethal drumlines were installed in 1962. The total number of fatal attacks in Queensland since then, however, is 24, three of them in 2020 alone. Great whites were protected in all Australian waters in 1999, and since then a club of researchers has emerged to dominate the sector and dictate what the public and politicians should think. As a surfer and a journalist, I've had a special interest in this topic for seven years now and tried many times to interview these researchers, usually with no success.
Those researchers are, of course, welcome on this show anytime to explain why it seems that they place higher value on a shark's life than a human's. There's only one aspect of shark behaviour that fails to spark the curiosity of these researchers. That is, why do sharks seem to avoid beaches where traditional nets and drum lines are in place? These same, these same people have, since protection of sharks became normalised, been mining a very lucrative vein of taxpayer-funded research and management programs. Their favourite method these days is to catch sharks, tag them and let them go. They then install devices at popular beaches that alert people in real time should a tag be detected. The tags are also meant to detect patterns in the sharks' movements, hopefully to prevent further attacks. Although a report by the West Australian government conceded in 2016, after some of the most extensive research into tag sharks in history, that the movements of great whites were, quote, highly variable and not consistent, unquote. Regardless, this management strategy enables people like Crouch to blame the victim in the event of, a, of an attack. As Crouch says, It is their world, not ours. They said sharks do not walk up on the beach and bite people. Everybody on the central coast know that they take a risk when they go out in the oceans. This deference to nature doesn't apply on land. Crouch's tenure as the local representative would be over pretty quickly if he announced a plan to start tagging the lethal snakes that have lived in the electorate for, for millennia and blaming anybody bitten by one for inhabiting, quote, their world. I'll be showing you another example of the dead-set battiness of the sustainability religion from none other than the third most powerful politician in the United States later in the show. Crouch's reminder that sharks still present a threat is not just a warning to his constituents. It is also an acknowledgement to sustainability zealots that marine animals are more important than humans who dare to enter the ocean. Whether this will translate into votes for Crouch at the state election in March might depend on whether any constituents are victims of otherwise preventable shark attacks this summer. There are some serious issues to be addressed by the New South Wales Parliament at the moment. A Western Sydney gang war in which women are now being murdered, an industrial dispute disrupting Sydney's public transport, a teacher shortage that is seriously diminishing the hopes of tens of thousands of school kids, and of course the ongoing scandals of bullying and bad behaviour in Parliament House itself. Amid all this, both sides of politics last week found time to tackle what most New South Wales citizens never realised was all that urgent. Nazi swastikas. Labor opposition leader Chris Minns said, quote, right-wing use of these is surging, unquote. Surging, huh? They're not surging as much as gangland murders and transport strikes, but whatever you say, Chris. The bill makes public displays of, of swastikas punishable by up to a year in prison and a $100,000 fine. Darren Bark of the New South Wales Jewish Board of Deputies said, quote, Nazi symbols are a gateway to violence and are used as a recruitment tool by extremists, unquote. Because, as we all know, 
in a country like Australia that fought against Nazism and various other fascist ideologies throughout the 20th century, all it takes for an ordinary citizen to become goose-stepping foot soldiers of the Fourth Reich is some conspiracy theorist nutcase walking down Pitt Street Mall with a swastika sticker on a pole and babbling about the elders of Zion. New South Wales Attorney General Mark Speakman said the bill would, quote, provide important additional safeguards against hate speech and vilification in our state, unquote. This is because Speakman thinks ordinary people are too stupid and gullible to have those safeguards themselves. But why stop there? Will Speakman also ban the hammer and sickle or the revolutionary Marxist star? Both symbols of an ideology that killed 100 million Russians and Chinese last century. Or what about the LGBTQ plus flag? Included in, in its rainbow coalition of fringe groups is Black Lives Matter, which tried to destroy several US cities in 2020, killed dozens of people and ruined countless businesses. Or the Islamic State flag, which according to police data has been flown more than 300 times in New South Wales in the past seven years. Former Premier Mike Baird said in 2014 that the flag should be banned, a suggestion that the federal police endorsed last year. But instead, New South Wales has banned a flag that is never seen and would only evoke, invoke ridicule if it was. New South Wales will go to the polls next March. At this rate, the choice will be the same as in Victoria between a dumb government and a dumber alternative. Well, individual freedom and personal responsibility have been the cornerstones of liberal democracies for centuries. In recent decades, though, so-called liberals have systematically undermined these principles while ceding those freedoms and responsibilities to the ever-growing state. But there are pockets of resistance. In the United States, for example, the Supreme Court will soon hear a case first brought in 2014 to end the, so the practice of so-called affirmative action, the preferential admission to universities for people from disadvantaged minorities. That same affirmative action is now applied by HR departments trying to make themselves look good in this era of narcissistic corporate so social responsibility. Such practices do nothing for those they seek to help because without merit, there will forever be an ambiguity about the person's true value as a student or employee. Hopefully, the Supreme Court will end this patronising tyranny of low expectations so the United States and, by extension, other liberal democracies like Australia can take one more giant leap towards ending discrimination once and for all. Another cornerstone of our liberal society is freedom of speech. But sadly, that is under more threat than ever as the attack on Salman Rushdie proved on the weekend. Rushdie, aged 75, was allegedly attacked by a knife-wielding man just as he was about to deliver a speech for an institute in New York that is dedicated to bringing together cultures peacefully. Such an objective is often used by militants who are not interested in multicultural harmony. And when that happens, Defenders of multiculturalism often bend over backwards, trying to gloss over the obvious causes. Is this helpful or not? Let's bring in Gideon Rosner from the Institute of Public Affairs to discuss it. Gideon, welcome to the show. 
Great to be back, my friend. Uh, great to be uh, have my second week here on the show. Oh, it's a it's a record yeah. run, mate. So let's keep it up. You're a, you're a very popular guest here on ADH, and always welcome. Now, firstly, let's look at how this attack was reported in Australia. The ABC mm. described Rushdie as a quote fierce critic of religion across the spectrum and outspoken about oppression in his native India, including under the Hindu nationalist government of Prime Minister Narendra Modi. Gideon, does this suggest Rushdie was attacked by Hindu nationalists? I, I guess in a way it kind of does. Um, that's a bizarre way to characterise Rushdie and not just this attack, but what he's been through throughout his entire career. You know, it wasn't a Hindu person uh, or somebody with sympathies towards Hindu nationalists that allegedly stabbed Narendra, uh, Narendra Modi, uh, Salman Rushdie. It was someone, I understand, who was a sympathiser with Iran, somebody who posted pictures of the Ayatollah of Iran on his Facebook feed. Uh, that, to me, seems like the more newsworthy thing. Uh, it wasn't Narendra Modi who put out a fatwa against Salman Rushdie. It was the Ayatollah of Iran. Uh, I, I guess this is just an, an attempt to throw a smokescreen over and, and obscure uh, what the main driver and what the main motive behind this attack was, which to me just seems like uh, not just ideological, but bad journalism, seriously bad journalism. And, of course, in the case of the ABC, it's bad journalism that you and I put the bill for. <laughs> and have grown to expect just quietly. But, Gideon, what is this what, what's this type of reporting trying to achieve? What do you think they're, they're up to? Look, as I said, I think it's uh, an attempt to sort of muddy the waters with what the true motive was. I think this is, it's sort of a, a roundabout way of saying the old, oh, not all Muslims, it's not all people of Islamic faith and so on. Oh, it's not just, Islam isn't the only religion that turns violent or, or you know, inspires violent tendencies in extremists and so on. And then they talk about Christians, uh, Christian extremists bombing abortion clinics or the fact that uh, Yitzhak Rabin was assassinated by a religious Jewish person. Now, that's all true. That's all true. And, and, and we shouldn't hide away from those issues either. Um, but if either of those cases were current and present and reported, then they would have been fully reported what the motivation was and what the particular religious beliefs uh, of the particular extremists behind them were. Uh, in this case, again, we're, we're seeing a journalist almost go to a deliberate effort to obscure the real motivation behind this. And, and again, it's bad journalism. It, it, it does not get to the heart of the issue. And this is why people are losing faith with the mainstream media, because egregious attempts to hide relevant details like this, and it does appear to be a, an attempt to hide the relevant information, uh, those sort of things just make, confirm in people's minds that the media is running an agenda and will uh, selectively edit their commentary to feed a, uh, to, to suit the particular narrative they're trying to pursue or, in this case, avoid. It's not as if we haven't seen this happen in Australia already. Our, our, our former friend, your former friend and mine, Bill Leake, the cartoonist, was forced to move house after he published a cartoon featuring the Prophet Muhammad. Uh, and received very valid and, and confirmed death threats as a result. Gideon, why can't we just simply agree that militant Islam is a problem in liberal democracies? Well, that's a, that's a very good question. I think most people do 
agree with that notion. I think people, you know, September 11, I'm of the generation that came of political age, I guess, in around 2001 and that attack that changed the world. Uh, now, look, and, and, you know, what I said earlier, not all Muslims, that's absolutely true as well, we have to uh, accept, by the way. Uh, it is a minority. It is an extreme minority. Uh, Muslim people that I know or that have lived in Australia for a long time are peaceful people. They contribute to society, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but you still have to acknowledge that tiny subset of the Islamic people uh, that have militant tendencies. Uh, it, it, let's say, for example, that 1% of Muslims are you know, militant and violent and might cause these attacks. 1% for argument's sake. Well, there are 1.8 billion Muslims in the world. That still means that there are 18 million uh, people who might have these tendencies. Again, it, it, it would be inaccurate and, you know, I agree, bigoted to extrapolate that on the entire population. But we have to accept at some point that this is a problem. This is a civilizational clash. And uh, the other point to note about it is that a lot of these extremists come from countries like Iran, where living conditions are very poor and they're very brutalised. Uh, poverty and disadvantage sparks violence in many cases. Uh, can we at least talk about that? Can we at least talk about the fact that a lot of these countries where autocrats keep their people ignorant and poor and angry and angry at the wrong people uh, are creating blowback effects for us here at the West? Again, avoiding these issues will not solve them. Uh, and, and we need to have a frank and serious discussion about the threat this faces. There's also the irony of, of people coming to freedom, coming from those places to enjoy the freedom and prosperity that we offer and then turning against us. That, that, that's the, the bit that doesn't make sense to me. But, but let's get back to how this applies in Australia. The alleged perpetrator's motives, uh, while they're yet to be established, it's highly possible or highly probable that he was offended by Rushdie's book, The Satanic Verses. Now, here in Australia, we have legislation against offending people. Again, this incident was probably initiated by someone being offended. Now, we have legislation against that. It's called Section 18C of the Racial Discrimination Act, which states, it is unlawful for a person to do an act otherwise than in private if the act is reasonably likely in all circumstances to offend, insult, humiliate, or intimidate another person uh, on the, based on the race, color, or national or ethnic origin of that person. Now, Gideon, this legislation encourages people to be offended by stupid yeah. insults. Do you think it's wrong? Can we draw a link to the offence that this alleged perpetrator felt against Rushdie and the people we are encouraging to be offended under Section 18C of Australian legislation? I think what it does is it... It, it, it confuses the issue, and and in a way, it equates uh, the person, the victim of the victim like Salman Rushdie, with the person who felt offended, and so on. I'm not saying that 18C allows people to go off and stab somebody else or or anything uh, like that, but what it what it does do uh, is establish, as you said, that. It, being offended is a... You have a right not to be offended, which, of course, in liberal democracy should not and cannot uh, realistically exist. Uh, the other thing, it shows the hypocrisy of a lot of these people who, you know, for example, uh, years ago when there was the Charlie Hebdo attack, I noticed there were a lot of people who changed their Facebook display pictures to Je suis Charlie, like that did anything, you know, but, you know, that's the, the way the online social media game is played, of course. But 
I couldn't help but think, how many of those people would also be fierce proponents of 18C? Okay, so you don't have the right to go off and stab somebody or shoot them or whatever, but you do have the right to take them to court and ruin them with, uh, bury them in legal fees. You do have the right to ruin their reputation by get, by allowing every media outlet in this country to call, as they call Andrew Bolt still to this day, a convicted racist, whatever the hell that means. Uh, it, 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 you do allow somebody like Bill Leake, for example, to be hounded to his grave uh, in the face of the ton of muck that was sent around him. You know, we had the, the Racial Discrimination Commissioner soliciting complaints against a cartoon that Bill Link, Bill Link draw. I mean, do these people hear what they are doing? Do they understand uh, the, the scary lengths, the, the slippery slope they are getting on here? When you have a government-appointed official with a, on a large salary with enormous resources at his disposal, when you have somebody like that soliciting complaints with the force that could have the force of law against a cartoon we are in very very serious and troubled waters of freedom of expression so no look free 18c does not motivate attacks like occurred against Salman Rushdie nobody is offending nobody is claiming otherwise but what we do have to protect in this country and around the world is the right to engage in commentary that might in, in, indeed in some cases is designed to offend people because that is the price of a free society we either have uh, all free speech or we have none of it. There is no such thing as picking and choosing. Well, let's just, let's just investigate that a little bit further. So this alleged crime against Salman Rushdie has been... Uh, the, the perpetrator is facing charges of attempted murder. Now, let's mm. dissect that. So on one level, he's committed a crime, a violent crime against another person, traditionally known as murder. But there's another element to this, Gideon, and I'd love to get your opinion on it. Essentially, he was threatening anyone who exercises their freedom of speech. Should that be in itself be considered a crime as well? I think there should be a, a, a limit uh, on the government's right to interfere with free speech. Whether you can actually throw the book at somebody because the specific reason they chose to attack somebody was, was trying to suppress their free speech, I'm not so sure about that because I do have a problem with changing the consequences attached to a crime based on the motive. I think a stabbing is a stabbing, a shooting is a shooting, a bombing is a bombing. Motive to me seems irrelevant as long as you can establish that somebody intended and, in fact, did commit the crime. Uh, what we don't want to have is a situation in which, for example, I think here in Victoria, uh, it's, a, it's a greater offence under the law to attack somebody who's a, an emergency frontline worker. Now, nobody condones a, a attacking an ambulance driver or a policeman or anything uh, like that, but I don't think that attacking somebody who happens to have a certain job should carry a greater criminal penalty than attacking somebody who happens to be an accountant or a, a, a lawyer or a, exactly. a, an entertainer or something exactly. like that. Yes, I think well that said. We, we yeah, need to be yes, consistent well across the board. Uh, if the sentences or the rate of conviction or anything else are manifestly inadequate after a policeman is attacked or stabbed or whatever, well, that's a separate conversation. You tackle that at a legal reform level. Uh, but I don't like the idea of creating separate offences based on who is attacked, what the motive is, or any other thing that's irrelevant to the fact that a human being was attacked, hurt, even killed in some cases. That is the, the, the thing we need to avoid, the harm to other people. Exactly. Well said, Gideon. Now, let's turn to federal politi politics. Scott Morrison seems to have made himself health minister during the pandemic. I, I, I thought that role was held by Greg Hunt. Gideon, have you made any sense of any of this? 
Gee, who was a worse health minister, Scott Morrison or Greg Hunt? That you could flip a coin on that. I was I was dead against this idea until you, you phrased it that way. Maybe there was something in it. No, look, in all seriousness, this is the most this is the most bizarre thing I think I've ever seen in politics. And I've been following Australian politics since I was like 15, since I was first handing out how to vote cards in short pants. This is absolutely and and i shouldn't be making light of it because this is something akin to a constitutional crisis the fact that you had the governor general appointing the prime minister to portfolios not without not just without the knowledge of the general public not just without the knowledge of the parliament not just without the the knowledge of the federal government party room but without the knowledge of the colleagues themselves who weren't who were vacated from their post with the stroke of a pen in the middle of the night without their knowledge. I don't even know how this works. So what, you you had Greg Hunt signing uh, ministerial declarations and at the same time you had Scott Morrison, you know, doing the real ones just to make sure they had the had the force of law. Uh, it is undemocratic. It is, to- it is contradictory, I think, to the Westminster system. It's The, the Governor-General claims it was... It was it was constitutional, it was fine, because that's on the advice of the government of the day. Even so, even so, even if that is correct, the fact that he... Alarm bells didn't ring when David Hurley was appointing Scott Morrison as the Minister for Everything. The fact that that didn't raise alarm bells shows that his tenure, I think, has to be reviewed and reviewed urgently, because the fact that... Did he at least seek the advice of the High Court in this situation? Did he at least confer with Her Majesty? Uh, His discharge of responsibilities also needs to be looked at. But, look, this just fits into a pattern of a, 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 an area in which the rule of law was ignored by governments across Australia, but including the federal government in particular. And it, and it adds to a huge rap sheet that Scott Morrison was left with after the coronavirus uh, issue. Now, appointing yourselves, uh, put, appointing yourself as minister without the knowledge of the parliament, whatever, that, you know, that's one thing. Uh, that's bad and terribly egregious on rule of law backgrounds, but, you know, um, it it doesn't hurt anybody. But preventing Australian citizens from coming into their own country, standing by while while families are separated at the border, things like that, uh, that it it shows that Scott Morrison did not cover himself in glory during that era. Sounds like the litany of of allegations is going to keep coming from that particularly egregious period in Australian history. Gideon, I think we're still going to be talking about this next week when we see you then. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks, mate. That's Gideon Rosner from the Institute of Public Affairs. Last week, the Blueprint Institute, a centre-right think tank in Sydney, held a meeting at which the problems within the Liberal Party were openly discussed. The Sydney Morning Herald reported that Rob Stokes, a 15-year veteran of Macquarie Street, said there had been a growing tendency to, quote, muzzle dissent lately. The newspaper also defined liberalism as, quote, the protection of individual freedom against mechanisms of social control, unquote. That sounds more like anarchy to me. Even John Stuart Mill acknowledged that freedom came with responsibilities, such as the level of philosophical debate and the level of understanding of our inherited freedoms these days. Let's get South Australian Senator Alex Antich, who knows more about these topics than most people, to talk about it. Senator Antich, welcome to the show. Uh, Thanks, Fred. Thanks for having me. I'm not sure I know more about anything than anyone, to be honest, but I'll do my best. (laughs) Well, let's start with the muzzling of debate, shall we? You're in the party. Has there been any muzzling of debate within the Liberal Party lately? 
Well, look, I, I don't actually think there has. And, and, I, and I know those comments were directed to the New South Wales Division, so I'll, I'll, I'll leave that for members of the New South Wales Division to comment on. But certainly in the SA Division, look, I, I, don't, think, I don't think so. I don't, I don't see any muzzling. I don't hear about it. I certainly don't experience it myself, uh, as is probably becoming clear. Um, but, uh, look, I, I think the, the, the truth is that, you know, there is always a divergence of views. And I, and I sometimes think this so-called muzzling of views is more a reflection on uh, perhaps the left of the party feeling uncomfortable with some of the positions that are thrown up from the conservative wing of the party. And, and that's where this suggestion comes from. I, I certainly don't feel any of that. But I know there have been instances in other other divisions, some of the, um, you know, ruminations about comments made about the culture wars, of course, are some of the topical ones. I, mean, I think, generally speaking, the party agrees largely, I think, with the economic and the, the, the dry conservative stuff. And I think probably the the culture wars are where we sort of get into this, uh, you know, this 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 sort of uh, rough water a little bit. But look, I, I really don't think so. I, certainly, from an SA point of view, I you know I, I feel as though we, we still have pretty open discussions about these sorts of things, and we certainly do at our state council. You know, the policy debate comes up, and I know that's consistent with some of the others. And uh, I think actually the WA division just had their um, their uh, state council uh, meeting and. Um, had a, quite a robust discussion around the voice, which they uh, which they ultimately uh, did not endorse, and and you know I would expect that to continue broadly. Um, so look, from from an SA point of view, I don't, I don't feel it. Well, one of the delegates at this uh, Blueprint Institute meeting did say that the Liberal Party needs to step away from the culture wars and focus more on. The, as you say, the, the, the pragmatic and, and sort of definable issues like, you know, taxation and, 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 and other measures of prosperity. But as everyone knows, Alex, politics is downstream from culture. How can, you, how can anyone argue that we should step away from the culture wars? That's wrong, isn't it? Yeah, look, it is wrong, Fred. You can't. Um, and in fact, I've been a, a fairly loud voice for the argument that we shouldn't and that we should be more, um, you know, I suppose, uh, forward in, in our views and the, on, the, on the culture wars. And I know there is a, a certain, you know, turning up of the nose by some at the, the, the sort of debates that you have out of the culture wars. And of course, by that, we mean things like cancel culture and, uh, you know, the role of, uh, you know, uh, you know, the, the sort of the, the, you know, Hollywood and all these sorts of things, they come up, they're very topical. I also think that they do capture the public's attention, and they should. Um, you know, much of this is is more than just policy fluff. It's it's real stuff. You know, some of the stuff about uh, women in sport. I mean, that would probably be, you know, that might be categorised differently. But I think there's an element of the culture wars in there as well. So, look, I think the the party really needs to now take those fights on. As far as I'm concerned, I, I think those that we see that we you know, the sort of conservatives amongst us relate to are people that, that take those fights on and, and run with them. That's certainly something that I look for. And, you know, I think we've got to win those debates in the same way we have to win the economic debates. And, and I will say also that I think, um, you know, as I said earlier, I think that the economic arguments are often ones that are um, held uh, across the board in the party. It really is those social policy culture wars um, things that are, that are the point of differentiation. And I think they're healthy. I think we should be debating them and I think we should be standing for them. Well, you mentioned men playing in women's sports and someone who brought that to very sharp focus during the election in May was Catherine Deves, who was shoehorned into the Warringah candidacy, candidacy by the then Prime Minister, Scott Morrison. She also drew attention to the, uh, to the practice of transgender surgery and called it mutilation. Uh, 
Uh, and she copped a, a lot of grief for saying that. Now, recently, as you probably know, Alex, the Tavistock Gender Clinic in Britain was shut down. It was one of the biggest operations of its kind in the world. I think the tide might be turning against uh, what I think is a, a particularly grotesque practice. Do you think Catherine Deves has been vindicated? Well, look, I think to a certain extent she has been. And I mean, obviously, I haven't trolled through Catherine's entire Twitter profile, so I can't comment on every single comment. But, um, you know, I think the reality here is that uh, a lot of people uh, have a lot of reservations about some of the stuff that's going on, and they should. Um, you know, this use of puberty blockers on kids uh, when, you know, perhaps a more cautious approach to and a different approach to you know, dealing with and, you know, treating these conditions is, is, is in order, you know, I think is a very reasonable one. I, I, I just, I think it's entirely consistent with medical principle to take a, you know, sort of a softly, softly approach with these things. But, you know, the left don't want that. They want their way or the highway. And, you know, I, I do worry that we are going to see generations of, of kids that, that are, you know, forever damaged by some of, some of the work that's being done here. Um, and, you know, look, I mean, everything's it's horses for courses, as I say, they're always different versions. But in truth, I think the tide is turning a little bit on this. And I, and I think that only comes because conservatives are happy to speak up for it. I wish more were. Um, we've got some very good voices in this space. Senator Claire Chandler and uh, previous Senator Amanda Stoker, of course, is very strong on a lot of this and a lot of good voices. Uh, for the record, I think Catherine Deves is the prototype. I think she would almost be the, the, the perfect person for a, for a parliamentary position, someone that does speak their mind and remember, you know, in a, in a parliamentary democracy, we don't always have to agree with everything everyone says. That that's used to be the way it is, of course, prior to cancel culture. Uh, and that was, the, that was how it worked. So someone that has a, a view, a very forthright view about a whole range of subjects, well, I would have thought is the, is the prerequisite. But, you know, call me old-fashioned, Fred. I don't know. <laughs> call me old-fashioned too, Alex. I'll join you in that. Now, on the weekend, <laughs> Troy, joint journalist Troy, um, Troy Bramston had a great story, an interview with former Prime Minister John Howard. He says, who, Howard, Mr Howard said the Liberal Party had lost the election in May because it lacked a manifesto for reform. Now, do you agree with that? And if so, are there moves within the party to remedy that? Yeah, look, well, I don't know that they're uh, necessarily, um, you know, you, you perhaps wouldn't get a, a consistent view at this stage so close to an election as to whether or not that's needed. I, look, I, I think there is a certain element of truth about that, I have to say. I, I Once again, you know, taking that issue of the culture wars back, I, I, I think there were some fights that we probably should have taken on. Uh, and, you know, it's difficult. I mean, I think a large part, part portion of that term was taken up with COVID madness. Um, but once again, this issue of being able to distinguish ourselves from Labor and the Greens is the one that really troubles me. I, I, I've said it consistently since the election and prior to, if we're going to continue to be Labor light or the Greens, we will lose at state and federal level all the time. I, I don't see that under, under Peter Dutton. I mean, we all know Peter to be a principled uh, person, somebody that will stand for these values. He's been a, a very good defence minister and a very, very good home affairs minister. So. I would be expecting that, you know, once the once the sort of rubber hits the road with the policy agenda, we will start to see some some things being put in there. And of course, that that proclamation that we're going to investigate nuclear power uh, early on was was music to my ears. I'm, something I spoke about in my maiden speech, and it is a point of policy differentiation. So, I, I think people can expect those things to come, uh, and that's what needs to happen. If if you know, I, I don't buy this argument that that we lost the election because we weren't teal enough. Uh, that never made any sense to me. Those electorates were essentially the same demographically as they were 
three years prior, the only thing that shifted, I think, was the perception that the party perhaps had drifted from from its values. And, and, uh, and I think that's the real danger here. So, look, I think you will. Peter Dutton's going to be a good campaigner. He's going to surprise a lot of people. Uh, and uh, I look forward to it. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned the, the Liberal Party's values. I mean, Howard also said that, quote, factionalism has poisoned, unquote, the party. Now, I mean, Howard also once famously described the party as a broad church. But can a broad church adhere to the same values? I mean, is that what's, is that what's driving the party apart at the moment? Uh, look, I, I, I think it can. I think it has before. And, of course, you don't have to think back too much prior to that to remember the famous battles of Peacock and Howard in the in the mid-80s and the, the late 80s, of course. So I have to say, I think there's a little bit of selective memory going on there, uh, you know, from, from the elder statesman, which, of course, is, uh, you know, a, a great prime minister's uh, prerogative to do so. But uh, I, I don't know. I don't know that factionalism really is has any more or less of a place than it does now in the Liberal Party or that it has in other parties. It is a simple byproduct of the Liberal Party being able to speak its mind. There are people that hold uh, much more left-wing views than I would, perhaps you would, Fred, uh, or, and there are people that probably even hold more conservative views than both of us as well. But, you know, that's the way it is. I think they do manage. And, um, but the one thing that can't happen is the party can't um, leer to, le lean to the left too far because then the, the, the sort of the spectre of factionalism becomes, uh, you know, more obvious, I think. And I, and I always find that, you know that the left will say that when um, you know when when uh, when the, the ship is writing itself. So I'm hopeful that we'll see, you know, more a more return to the party's values, which is the party is a Menzies, um, free speech, uh, you know, freedom of choice. These are things that have all been really missing and important in the last little period. So uh, you know, I, I, don't, I don't. I'm not convinced factionalism has increased or or otherwise over the last 30 years. I think it's all pretty much the same. Well, that's reassuring to hear, but factionalism is pretty rife in the Republican Party in the United States. Mr. Howard made a kind of a throwaway line, really, uh, but caused a lot of sensation when he said Donald Trump is unfit to return to the presidency. Now, uh, like you, Alex, you're a bit of a Trump man. Do you agree with Mr. Howard's assessment here? Now, look, I'm going to have to entirely disagree with Mr. Howard on, on, on that basis. Look, I, and I think there is an element of, um, uh, you know, of, of the time shifting in, 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 over the course of time here. I, you have to look back at President Trump's track record and, and people don't like the personality, they don't like the carry on, they don't like the behaviour. And that, that's all fine. That's a personal decision. I actually think it's pretty irrelevant, to be absolutely honest. So, I don't see this as being some, you know, uh, figurehead that needs to, you know, sit and use their, you know, knife and fork properly and all that sort of stuff. I, I see it as a track record scenario, and particularly when you look at the shambolic nature of the country at the moment under President Biden. Um, you only have to look back two years ago to when they were energy independent, when they were on the brink of Middle East peace, they were pulling out of wars all over, all over the world. Uh, you know, you had all these things that had actually happened and been done because you had someone that was pushing against the trend. So I just don't agree with that. And I really don't see how that's the case. I think the other thing that needs to be said here is that conservative politics now, I think, has changed a lot from even the time when Mr Howard was in Parliament. Uh, I don't see uh, centre-right type conservative types as being the establishment anymore. I think quite, quite the opposite. The dial has shifted now that you know, we are almost anti-establishment types and uh, therefore needing to show some teeth and a bit of fight. And I've talked about that many times at length. One of my great 
frustrations is the the amount of time spent by conservatives in this country, both politicians and otherwise, talking about things under their breath so that people don't hear it, but they won't say it out loud for fear of being yelled at. That applies to politicians as much as it does apply to people in their private life as well. Well, guess what? I think we've got to start getting louder. Um, and sometimes, you know, it takes a President Donald Trump to do that. So be it. If it, if it wins the day, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm all for the values, not the, not the show. I couldn't agree more. We need to take the gloves off and take, them up, take the fight up to the opposition, Alex. Senator Antich, thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Fred. Good to be with you. That's South Australian Senator Alex Antich. Now, before I go, here's a clip from Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the United States House of Representatives and nominally the nation's third most powerful politician. If you listen closely, you might detect evidence of the left's religious devotion to sustainability. How can they vote against the planet? Mother Earth. Mother Earth gets angry from time to time, and uh, this legislation will help us address all of that. <laughs> really? <laughs> Who knew legislation could do that? There was a time when environmental legislation was imbued with the power to change the weather, which was impressive enough. But appeasing an angry Mother Earth? That's a whole new level altogether. In Aztec times, high priests had to sacrifice humans on an altar to get a result like that. In these more enlightened times, all it takes is money. How much, you ask? Well, how much would you pay to prevent droughts, fires, cyclones and floods? 500 billion? 1,000 billion? No, with the Democrats in power, the figure is a bargain basement 369 billion US dollars. This offer from Mother Earth is only available between now and November 8, however, which is when the Democrats in Congress will be turfed out by angry American voters in the midterm elections. After then, who knows what price Mother Earth will expect from the Republicans who take over Capitol Hill or if she will negotiate with them at all. The $369 billion bill is part of a colossal legislative package worth a total $737 billion that also pays for some health care and prescription drugs with money raised by new taxes and tens of thousands of new recruits to the Internal Revenue Service. But if you thought the legislation's magic power ended in its ability to appease Mother Earth, Think again, it can also magically reduce inflation. How? Well, you're not meant to ask that. Just read the title. It's the Inflation Reduction Bill, you peasant. What else do you need to know? Well, even the left-wing media aren't buying that. Most of the response from the New York Times, Washington Post and so on has focused not on proof that the bill can live up to its title, which big spending government programs never can, and has focused instead on the appeasement of Mother Earth, which is actually more plausible. If this bill manages to achieve the politically unlikely outcome of saving the careers of some of the Democrats in Congress in November, expect to see left-wing politicians elsewhere in the world employ the same strategy. In Germany, Chancellor Olaf Scholz We'll introduce the Wie will heat the homes with Russian gas this winter bill. In Britain, Boris will pass the my colleagues were just kidding and want me to stay bill. While here in Australia, Albo will present to Parliament 
The solar panels work at night and windmills spin on windless days, Bill. Which Australians can read by candlelight during blackouts as the country shifts to 82% renewables by 2030? Well, that's it from me. Thanks for watching. And remember, tell your friends to download the ADH app to their phones and TVs, where you can watch all our content live and on demand. And it's free. And I'll see you tomorrow night at 9pm. Good night.